Welcome to episode 36 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, recording as always in sunny Huelva, Spain. It is 81 degrees here in Huelva, which I promise you is significantly hotter than 81 degrees in New Jersey, just because the sun is a lot stronger here. So the same temperatures don't always mean the same things, which means that my apartment is slowly becoming a hot box as I record this, since I have to have all the windows closed because of the construction next door to keep you guys from hearing that. So with that being said, we're going to move on and get this episode recording before I sweat out all of the water I've drank for today. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to try something a little bit different with this episode in or just really the, the way the March of History has gone in the past is with Brendan not being on episodes and with there being a lot more solo episodes, the March of History has kind of unconsciously become more and more scripted, more and more of a script that I'm reading off of. Not so much a script, I would say it's more of an outline. And sometimes I read and sometimes I speak off the cuff. But for this episode, I want to try something entirely different and try to speak entirely off the cuff. I have some notes in front of me for some of the details just to remind myself of the story since I don't have a photographic memory to remember all this stuff. But for the most part, I'm just going to speak off the cuff. And if you end up liking the way this episode turns out, please let me know because that is good feedback for me to hear and I can do more episodes this way. Or if you prefer them to be scripted and you don't like when I speak off the cuff because I'm not very good at it, then <laughs> let me know that feedback too and I can change back to the more scripted episodes. All right, with that out of the way, let's get back to our story. Let's get back to Caesar. We left off with Caesar and his eight legions crossing the Ain River to face the Belgae. Once across the river, they made a strong fortified camp on the far side of the river, on the opposite side from where the Remy, their allied tribe is. And then Caesar sent a small garrison to build another small fort on the other side of the river in case the Belgae tried to cross. And the job of this other garrison was also to guard the bridge that Caesar had crossed as well and keep that secure for him. In the meantime, Caesar has chosen his land. He's chosen where he wants to fight. This is a good strategic position for him, and he is content just to wait for the Belgae to come to him. Remember, all of their tribes, except for the Ramai who had defected, have gathered into one cohesive unit, or you know, as cohesive as a, as a group of tribes can be, and are marching towards the Romans at this very moment. So the Belgae are on their way to Caesar, but just when they're about to arrive at Caesar, not too many miles away from his camp, they suddenly make a beeline for a town called Bibrax, which is one of the Rem Remy's town, Caesar's new ally, the, the Belgae tribe that had defected to the Romans, and they put it under siege. And the leader of this town sends an envoy to Caesar as they sneak out in the night, and they arrive in the Roman camp, and they tell Caesar that basically they're outnumbered by a huge margin, and they're likely to, or they will collapse and, and give in to the Belgae unless they receive some kind of support from Caesar. So around midnight, Caesar sends to help them a group of Numidian archers. And, and Numidia, if you don't know, because you'll hear them mentioned a lot in, in ancient Roman books or documentaries or, or stories about Caesar's Gallic Wars because they were part of his auxiliaries. They were troops from modern-day Algeria, from Tunisia, from Libya, and, and some parts of Morocco. Basically, they were North Africans who were had 
or they're really famed for being horsemen and, and having great cavalry, but they also had archers and they also had light infantry. So the Romans used all of these and they were very skilled warriors. Maybe not so skilled and famous as the Roman infantry, but they were good for other purposes. So Caesar sends all of his Numidian archers. He sends all of his Cretian archers, which the, the Cretian archers are basically... I mean, they're archers from Crete. <laughs> they're exactly what they sound like. Uh, and Crete was famous for having extremely accurate and well-trained archers. That's the, the Greek island of Crete. And so for people like the Romans who specialized in heavy infantry and really didn't have a populace that was skilled as archers, these were great troops to have around. So Caesar sends a group of Cretan or all of his Cretan archers that he has with him, and he sends all of his Balearic slingers. So when I say slingers, what that means is they're basically like the story of David and Goliath, where David has a sling with a rock, and Goliath is this big soldier. Well, that's what slingers are. They have a sling, and they're able to accurately throw a rock a very far distance. And it sounds funny today to say, oh, they threw rocks. Well, how dangerous can that be? In the ancient world... With a train slinger, a rock could kill somebody, just as deadly as an arrow or, or anything else. So these were Balearic slingers, which means that they were from well, what is modern-day Spain in the islands, from Majorca, from Ibiza, where Rafael Nadal is from, actually. So these troops all leave Caesar's camp at around midnight. They're led by the envoy that came to see Caesar. They sneak their way into the city of the Brax, and the spirits of the defenders then soar because the way the Gauls actually attack is they take stones because, again, stones are deadly in the ancient world. And they th they just bombard the defenders on top of the wall. And when they pin down the defenders on top of the wall, they then march in a shield wall towards the wall and try to dismantle it from, from the base of the wall. This becomes very difficult to do if you have skilled archers and slingers shooting arrows at your people who are throwing rocks because yes rocks are deadly but slingers and archers who are skilled and have been doing this their entire life are obviously going to be more deadly especially when they're shooting from the cover of a, of a wall and you have no cover you're out in a field throwing rocks at a wall so like i said the, the spirits of the defenders soar and the spirits of the attackers plummet because they know that this is going to be a huge issue to try to get into this wall. And, and this is not, this is supposed to be like a little distraction for them. This was not their main goal was to get into the city. So what they do instead, the Belgae, is they just begin to burn all the villages and farms in the area. And this is kind of some retribution against the Remy. Because remember, the Remy are Belgae and they defected to Caesar. So they can't really get at their town, one of their main towns, Babrax, but what they can do is burn all the farmland, burn all the farms, and burn all the little villages nearby. So they content themselves with that. And then, having done that, they march towards Caesar and his army, and they pitch camp two miles away from the Roman army. And Caesar says in his Gallic commentaries that his sentries could tell from the smoke coming up from the Belgae camp that their camp was seven miles in circumference, which is huge. So, again, you know, the Rami listed a number of troops that they said that the Belga had, and they listed it by each tribe number, and it was a massive number for the ancient world, and, and this number could have been exaggerated, and, and probably was to some degree. But 
even once the army shows up, Caesar says, at least according to the, the fires from their smoke, or the smoke from their fires, this was a huge camp. Of course, there's the caveat that, you know, it would not be the first time that an army has tricked a enemy army by lighting more fires than there are soldiers, right? That's happened throughout history to trick the enemy into thinking your force is bigger than it is. But in this case, I don't think that's what the Belgae were doing. I think they actually did have a huge army. So the way this begins, this kind of dance between the two sides, is that Caesar keeps his troops back. So he has a tendency, Caesar, to rush into battle, rush into a war, and hit the enemy before they're expecting it. But when it comes to actually having a pitched battle, he is very cautious. And he always wants to understand his enemy and size them up to see, hey, how do my troops compare to their troops? Do I have anything to worry about? Are they better trained than my troops? Are they tougher? Are they more skilled? And once he figures that out, and and nine times out of ten, that's not the case. Nine times out of ten, Caesar's Roman legions are far better than the enemy. You know, he has no problem engaging with them, but he's not going to do that until he understands them first. And remember, Caesar had heard that the Belgae were the fiercest of the Gauls, were the most aggressive, were the most savage. And this is all saying something, right? Because the Romans saw all of the Gauls as being fierce, aggressive, and savage. And if these Belgae were supposed to be the most fierce, the most aggressive, and the most savage of a very fierce, aggressive, and savage people, that's saying something, right? So there's all sorts of rumors about how how strong these guys are, how big they are, how tough they are, and their numbers too, right? They have a huge army. So Caesar decides to make sure that his troops are a match for the Belgae first and to let his troops, this is probably more important, is to let his troops see that they are a match for the Belgae before throwing them in head first. Right? Because if they go in hesitant, thinking that they're facing a bunch of giants who are utterly ruthless and skilled in warfare, then they're going to be timid. But if you give your troops time to see them as humans, to see them as a defeatable enemy, then of course your troops will go into the battle feeling much more confident, feeling much more sure of victory, and will fight much better. So to do this, Caesar has a number of cavalry skirmishes, and this is basically, like I said, to size them up and get a feel for them, and in these cavalry skirmishes, Caesar learns that his troops are in no way inferior to the Belgae, and are actually superior, and can handle themselves just fine against the Belgae. Basically, Caesar's camp is up on a hill. It's, it's got its back to the river, like I said in the last episode, but it's also up on a hill. So he pulls most of his legions out of camp and places them on the hill in front of the camp. That way, they would be fighting with a downward slope, and they would be above the enemy. You know, like Star Wars, like Anakin fighting Obi-Wan, they would have the high ground. And he does this with six of his legions, with the two new legions that he just raised that are inexperienced, that had not been tested in battle. He leaves them back in camp to guard the camp and to guard their place of retreat, right? If things go bad, they would head back for the camp, and you would want to have people manning that. Plus, with these new untested legions, you don't want the maybe the right or the left flank or the center of the army to be reliant on inexperienced legions. So best to let them watch from behind and see how the experienced legions do things. But like I said, the Romans are heavily outnumbered by the Belgae, so Caesar, as a good commander, wants to make sure his troops have the best 
chances um, at this battle. So what he does is he has two dishes dug, one on the left side of the army and one on the right side of the army. And these are basically perpendicular to the direction of the army. So if the army is lined up in front of the camp, in a line stretched out horizontally in front of the camp, the two lines go vertically and are parallel to each other. And they're, and they're two ditches dug in the ground. And the reason why they do this is to defend his army against being surrounded completely. If the enemy size is so huge that the Romans are outnumbered by two or three or four or five to one, right? Then even if the Romans are better soldiers, they can be surrounded on the left, on the right, even from behind. And that would be a disaster for any army. So the idea of these ditches is to keep the enemy from being able to outflank Caesar's army with their huge numbers and keep them fighting in the front of the Roman legions. And at the back of both of these ditches, Caesar places kind of like a little fort. Maybe a fort's too strong of a word, but kind of a little outpost. And there he places his siege works, his ballista, his scorpions, they called them, which are basically giant crossbows capable of shooting large bolts huge distances and very accurately and would have been siege equipment like the Gauls had probably never seen before. The Belgae would be stunned by this. So it's a very, very strong position for Caesar and his army. They have their flanks protected by these ditches. They have two posts that are, are loaded with siege equipment to rain down scorpion bolts on the Gauls or on the Belgae, and they can feel confident of victory despite being outnumbered by so much. Now, the Belgae, they see Caesar lead his army out of camp. They see him digging these ditches. They see him setting up these outposts, and they lead their men out of camp as well. You know, nobody in the ancient world wants to be seen as being a chicken, being a coward, and being afraid of the enemy. But here's the issue. There is a marsh between the two armies. So if Caesar's army is on top of a hill, waiting on the side of the hill, it's basically the same thing for the Belgae. They're on another hill that's facing Caesar's hill, waiting on the side of that hill, and in between the two armies in a kind of valley is a small marsh and maybe a small stream. So both armies are waiting for the other army to cross this marsh, and when they're bogged down in the marsh, you would then sweep down and attack them, maybe rain some arrows on them and catch them when they're in unfavorable ground, and then you yourself can fight from high ground while they fight from marsh. It would be a dream scenario for any army, but obviously you'd have to be stupid to fall into this trap, right? <laughs> you know, armies have fallen into traps like this before, but it doesn't happen that often. So both sides see the potential for a trap, and they both want to be on the right side of that trap, and so they both basically sit there and wait and wait, and wait for the other side to make a move. But, like I said, neither of them are stupid, so neither of them do move, and soon what ha does happen is, as so often happens in these ancient standoffs, is a cavalry skirmish begins to happen between the two armies. They don't say exactly, but it seems it's happening around the area of the marsh. And it, it's kind of cool, because you can imagine that both armies, hundreds of thousands of men, are sitting there on these two hills, almost like a stadium, watching the cavalry go at each other and fighting. And you can imagine if if there's a, a big Roman victory or, or some Roman cavalry officer or, or cavalryman dismounts and, and knocks a, cal a, a Belgae cavalry uh, man off his horse, then maybe the Romans get up and they start cheering. 
And then maybe things turn and the Belgae start to win, start to chase the Romans off, and the Belgae start cheering. But the Romans come back, right? And they start to fight back, and now they're pushing the Belgae back, and the Romans start cheering. So you can imagine an atmosphere in which it's almost a stadium in which these two cavalry sides are fighting and with their own sides cheering. The only difference from a modern sports event is that it's a very much a life-or-death contest. You know, the, these soldiers, these cavalrymen, are fighting for their lives in these marshes while both sides cheer for them. And all of the officers of the army are watching, so if they want to rise in the army, if they want to be promoted, they need to fight well, they need to be brave. And if you do anything to shame yourself, everyone's going to see it whether you're a Gaul or a Roman, and they're all going to remember that, right? So you have all the incentive to fight harder. I just think it's a, it's a really cool part of this battle that Caesar really doesn't spend too much time on, but it's kind of wanted to paint that picture for you. And eventually, after going back and forth for a good period of the day, the Romans do win, and their cavalry, which, again, remember, consists of Gallic cavalry, chase off the Belgic cavalry. But still, neither side moves to cross the marshes with their infantry. And this is kind of the issue with what Caesar has done here. It is very good to give your soldiers a strong position, to give them a great position in which they can fight the enemy from and feel confident of winning. But if it's too strong, which Caesar's is a very strong position, you run the risk that the enemy is going to see that and say, no, why, why would I attack you if you have all the advantage? You know, why would I come across a marsh, march up a hill to attack you where you have your legions lined up between two ditches so I can't outflank you with my greater numbers and you can rain artillery on me down the hill? You know, that's a great position for you, but it, it's so obvious that why would you, if you're the enemy, if you're the Belgae, why would you put yourself in that scenario? So that's always the issue. If if you put yourself in an advantageous position of terrain and it's too obvious, then the enemy just won't even come to meet you. They'll just march away or march somewhere else or, or try to make you move positions. And that is exactly what the Belgae do. So Caesar, seeing that the Belgae are not going to engage, he doesn't want his troops staying out there all day in the hot sun. They're in full armor. They're carrying their weapons. This is tiring to them. So he sends them back into their into their camp, and he waits to see what happens next. The Belgae do the same, but soon they decide to change tactics altogether, and they send a division of their troops across the River Ain. They send this division up or down the river. They don't say exactly which direction the river they go, but basically they send this division along the river to find fords across the river, shallow places, and they find these, and they're able to cross. And the idea that they have is their new plan is to come from the other side of the river, take the small fort that Caesar has there. Remember, he sent one of his legates to guard that area and then destroy the bridge and cut off Caesar from his supplies that are coming from the Remy, which he needs in order to supply his army. Or if they're unable to take the bridge and unable to defeat that smaller fort that Caesar has on the opposite side of the river, what they would do in plan B is to sweep down on the land of the Remy and just burn all their crops, burn all their barns, burn all the farms, burn all the villages, and again, destroy Caesar's ability to feed his army in the territory of the Belgae. Now, the man holding this side of the river for Caesar is a man named Quintus Titurius Sabinus. And I'm going to call him Titurius. He sends a messenger to Caesar warning him that the Belgae are crossing the river, that they're headed towards his camp, and that he needs backup. 
Caesar loses no time in reacting and personally leads out all of his cavalry, all of his Numidian light infantry, all of his archers, and all of his slingers to meet the Belgae. They cross the bridge that Caesar has secured, so they're able to get across much quicker than the Belgae, who are trying to cross the actual river, and they sweep down on the Belgae as they're crossing. Some of the Belgae have already made it across the river, others are still waiting on the far bank, others are in the middle of the river. So it's it's literally the worst possible time for the from the Belgae's point of view for the Romans to catch them, and from Caesar's point of view, it's the best possible time to catch them. It's kind of like when he caught the Helvetii crossing their river, uh, except he had caught them from behind. This time he catches them from the direction that they're heading and is able to do much the same thing to them. The Roman cavalry kill the Belgae who have already crossed the river, and the ones still in the river are showered with arrows and stones, and others are surrounded by the cavalry and just cut down the river, killed where they stand, and it's just butchery from you know the Romans just butchering the Belgae. But Caesar does say that the Belgae tried with great daring to escape while surrounded by bodies in the river and around the river, but to no avail. The Romans cut them all down. So this is a major success for the Romans. It's not the entire Belgae army. It's not even a majority of the Belgae army, but it is a sizable portion. They did try to outflank the Romans, and the Romans got the best of them and cut them down very badly. So the Belgae decide that it's time for a new plan for multiple reasons. One, because they don't want to face Caesar on his, on his little hill fortress there that he's built. Two, you know, going around him didn't work out so well either because he's got this river at his back and he's got control of the bridge. Basically, he's outsmarted them in, in all the ideas of terrain or, or all the, the facets of terrain, which is why they, they always say never fight an enemy on, on a ground of their choosing because they chose it for a reason, right? And Caesar didn't choose this area for no reason. He chose it because it would be easily defended by his much smaller force. But the Belgae have an even bigger problem than all of that. The fact is they are a huge number of men and it takes a lot of food to feed all those men. And they are running out of food very quickly. That's one of the interesting things about ancient warfare is you would think that it's always best to get the most amount of men you can get, and it often is, but the more people you get, the more you have to feed them, right? And that, you know, the land that you're on can only sustain those men for so long before you have to keep on moving. So if the war becomes bogged down and protracted, if you have to stay in one spot for a long period of time, this can be disastrous because... They're basically like a swarm of locusts eating all the food wherever they go. And if they stop in one place for too long, then that area becomes devoid of food anymore. And they'll all starve to death. So it's good to have a big number of men, but only if it's going to be a quick war or if you intend to continually move your army. But in this case, the Belgia have been stuck in one place for a while now. They're running out of food and they need to do something. Another part of the problem is that they have gotten word that the Idui, remember those are Rome's main Gallic allies, the Idui, and Caesar had sent them ahead with their uh, their leader, Dumnorix. I'm sorry, Dumnorix is, is, is his traitorous brother. Divikiakis is the druid and leader, or one of the leaders of the Idui. So Caesar had sent Divikiakis ahead with the Idui to harass the Bel to yeah to harass the Belgae and attack their farms and attack their villages to try to divide them up and it's working 
because the main Belgae army has gotten word that the Idoe are heading directly for the land of the Belavaki. They are the biggest and strongest force that comprise this united Belgae force. And the Belavaki have no intention of staying with the army while the Idoe plunder their lands, kidnap their children, rape their wives, burn their farms. And you can't blame them, right? Who is going to stay with the army and fight while your lands and your families are destroyed like that? So the rest of the Belgae do their best to convince them, stay with the army, keep a united front. We can still defeat the Romans here. But the Belovaki are hearing none of it and they want to go home. And so seeing that the Belovaki comprise a significant portion of their army and are going to leave regardless of what the rest of the Belgae say, the Belgae decide, well, the united force of the Belgae was good while it lasted, but it's time to break up the band. So they form up a new plan. And the new plan is basically the opposite of the old plan. The old plan had been hey, we are going to be much stronger together as a united force to fight the Romans and to defeat them. And, and the, the new plan is the exact opposite. But they have just as much confidence in this new plan. They say that they're all going to head home to defend their own tribal territories and that they'll, much, they'll be able to defend their own homeland much better because they know it much better. They grew up in the homeland, which there's definitely truth to that. And they'll be able to feed themselves much better in their own home territories because their own families will send them food and they'll be near to their farms so they can all feed themselves, which is, is also true. And the idea being that whenever Caesar chooses to attack one of the tribes, they will all gather to that territory of that tribe and defend them. Good idea in theory, but they're not taking into account how quickly Caesar moves, right? He will be at one tribe and taking the city before any of them have even heard that that this tribe is being attacked, right? But anyway, the Belgae think that this is a great idea, or at least think that they have little other option than to you know, pitch this idea as a great idea to their troops. And so the army begins to disband. Not in any organized way, it's complete chaos, just think the end of a concert or a big sporting event times 10. Everyone is trying to get out. They're all trying to beat the traffic. They're all trying to beat the crowd. You got to imagine the roads they had back then weren't very good. They would have been small, narrow, probably dirt roads. And it would have been a huge hundreds of thousands of people leaving all at once. And to get stuck at the back of that train I mean, you're not going to get home anytime soon. And it's not that they're rushing for fear so much. They're just rushing because they don't want to be caught in this traffic and they want to get home. They want to have their home-cooked meals. If you're the Belovaki, you want to get home to save your wife and children, to defend your home territory, to stop the Idawi from burning your farm and, and carrying off all your possessions. So this is why they're all in a rush. But it's chaos, absolute chaos. And a lot of it's happening in the middle of the night. They're just packing up in the middle of the night making a huge amount of noise, and not surprisingly, the Roman sentries, who are just across the hill, can hear all this, and they report this to Caesar. Now, Caesar, for his part, doesn't know what's going on. He hears a bunch of noise. It seems that the, Bel that the Belgae are leaving the area. It seems like a retreat. Basically, he says in the commentaries he thought that they were retreating. This is what it seemed like. But it didn't make any sense to him. Like, yes, he had defeated them over that little river crossing, but it was not a pitched battle. It was not a major victory. The Belovaki still, or the Belge still way outnumbered him. So why would they be retreating? It doesn't make any sense to him. And he felt that it might be a trap. 
If he deploys all of his legions out of their camp at night to follow the Belgae on territory that they know far better than the Romans, this could be an ambush waiting to happen, where they draw him out into the wilderness at the nighttime, and the Romans are then surrounded and, and put down. So Caesar decides to be cautious and to wait into the morning and until he gets intelligence of why the, Bel- the Belgae are leaving. And that's interesting about Caesar because he is equally cautious at times and equally aggressive and daring and, and flows caution to the winds at other times, which... You know, you think about, well, what's the lesson to be learned there? At times, he seems like a different person. At times, he's extremely cautious. At times, he's extremely reckless, or if not reckless, then at least daring. I think the lesson to be learned is that he sizes up every situation and makes his decision on how to behave based on that situation. You know, he's not somebody that believes there's one size fits all. That daring action is always the best action, or that cautious action is always the best action. He's going to look at each scenario on a one-by-one basis and decide that, hey, in this scenario, I don't have all the facts. I don't know why they're retreating, so therefore caution's the best. Other scenarios, he does feel that he has good enough intelligence to make an aggressive and daring decision and does so. But maybe the lesson is that there is not one size, there's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. You need to customize your strategy depending on the situation and the information you have. But the next morning, Caesar says that his spies confirmed that there was no order to the retreat, that it actually was a retreat, it wasn't a trap. And so Caesar loses no time at all, and he sends his cavalry ahead to harass them under the command of Quintus Pettius and Lucius or Oh, this is a diff- difficult name. Lucius Arunculius Cata. Great name. Lucius Arunculius Cata. So those are two of his legates. He puts them in command of the cavalry. And to back them up, he sends another three legions under support of his, or under command of his right-hand man, one Titus Labianus. Blessed with a great name for history, as always, Labianus. And for the Romans, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. The cavalry chases the stragglers down at will and cuts them down easily. Like I said, there's no order to the Belgae retreat. They're all over the place. They're strung out over miles. There is no rear guard, or there is a rear guard that's kind of defending them, but it's not big enough. It, no, there's no discipline. Nobody's listening. No, there's no organization. There's no supreme command, right? This is always the issue with allied armies is that you know, okay, so you have the all these different tribes, and one tribe tells another tribe, hey, stop, we need a fight, and that tribe says, well, we don't take orders from you, right? We take orders from our own leaders, and this, this is how allied armies always go. This is why Napoleon had a, such a great time defeating allied forces that invaded him. This is the same issues that the allied forces fighting in World War II found, too, that it was very difficult to coordinate and get all the allied troops to work together. But what little rear guard the Belgae did have defending them, the Romans soon catch up with and cut them down and destroy them. And now disorder becomes the Romans' best friend, and the Belgic commanders try to get the rest of the army, the main part of the army that's on the march, to stop and turn around and to fight. But these troops, you know, they can hear the commotion, they can hear the fighting in the distance. But to them, it seems far off. It seems like it's not their problem. And it seems like the best solution for them would be to run forward rather than turning backwards and fighting whatever's chasing them. And so they just 
I think Caesar's exact words were they, they put their chances in flight or something along those lines, which this, I mean, this goes to show one of the greatest advantages the Roman army had was that they were extremely disciplined and that they would listen to their commanders even in the worst heat of war. Even, you know, as they're losing a battle, they would stay disciplined and they would listen and they were professional. And that's the issue with the Belgae is that they may have had way more troops than the Romans, but these were not professional soldiers. These were guys that came from their farm with their swords to fight, to defend their homes. They were not disciplined. They were not a united, cohesive force. And so when you tell them to stop and fight, they tell you, no, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> and they run instead. And this is something that would not happen in a Roman army. It would have been much more organized. So eventually the Romans and the, and the cavalry catch up with the main force of the Belgae, and it's the same. I mean, the worst casualties in ancient warfare always happen when one side runs. If they stay and fight, it's much tougher to cut them down, but the second that they turn their back and they divide up and they're no longer a cohesive unit defending each other's flanks, then that's when the worst casualties happen, and, and that's what happens in this case. And Caesar, in his own words, says, quote, the result was that our men, without any risk, killed as many of the enemy as time allowed, end quote. And that's something I should say, maybe I haven't made this point enough so far, is Caesar could be very merciful, especially when dealing with other Romans. He was much less ruthless and bloodthirsty than a man like Sola, or even than a young Pompey, because young Pompey was nicknamed the Teenage Butcher. But when it came to warfare against foreign peoples, when it came to somebody standing between Caesar and his ambition, Caesar could be utterly ruthless. I mean, just cutting these people down. You think about the Helvetii who are migrating. I mean, the Romans cut down men, women, and children. No problem. Same with the Germans. Cut down men, women, and children. Burn their villages. Burn their farms if, if they found them. I mean, these are all things happening at Caesar's orders, right? And he seems to have no compunction about doing this. So it's kind of weird how he can be all about mercy and all about forgiving when it comes to Romans and so utterly ruthless when it comes to the enemies of Rome. And I think some of that is cultural. I think that a Roman aristocrat would have been raised from the very time they were a young toddler to see themselves as superior, to see that it is a good moral Roman that humbles and defeats the enemies of Rome. And how do you do that in the ancient world? You destroy them, you, you cut them down, you burn their villages, you sack their cities. And you know if you're taught from the time you're a young child that this is not immoral, and this is not bad, then you can imagine your moral compass would be a little bit different than the one that we have today. I think with, with human beings in general, I don't think that there are absolute moral compasses, that we're all born with some conscience. I think a lot of that is taught. And I, I don't think I used to believe that, but as I've read history more and more, and, I, and I've seen the way people behaved in the ancient world and, and how this was expected of them, I think that your moral compass and what you think is right and wrong is drummed into you from a young age, not just by your parents, but by society and what your society values. And that if your society tells you from a young age that it's okay to kill foreign children and foreign women and foreign people to take their land, then you're going to think that that's an okay thing to do. 
And I don't think that there's as, maybe there is some absolute morality out there in that not everybody born into these ancient societies was this ruthless. But I, I still think that a lot of it depends on how you're raised and the society that you're born into. I mean, if you look at the Mongols, those guys were ruthless even to the ancient medieval world that was a ruthless place. Those guys were just so much more ruthless than anything anybody had encountered before. And to be, I mean, yet they're, they're human beings, right? They're the same as you and me. They were just raised differently. So I think that I think that nurture has far more to do with it than nature, but that's enough of my rambling on that. The killing of the Belgae and the chasing down of them fleeing continues until the nighttime when Caesar's cavalry and legions finally returned to the Roman camp. So this was a major victory for the Romans. In Caesar's own words, he says that they killed as many as they could without any risk to themselves and chased them down, put them to flight, had them fearing the name of Rome and the name of Caesar. And the next day, Caesar moves to keep that advantage. He doesn't want the Belgae to have any time to recover, so he rapidly force marches his legions to the land of the Suesiones. These are, or these, this is a tribe on the border of the Remi, and they are one of the stronger tribes that's joined this coalition. I think they supplied about 50,000 troops to the coalition. And Caesar then besieges one of their main towns, a town known as Noviodunum. And the intelligence that Caesar had received, because he's always got a spy network, tells him that the town has no defenders. So Caesar sends his men in for a direct assault. But things don't go so well. Yes, there are very few defenders, but the defenses of the city are very strong, the walls are high, and Caesar's legionaries have no ladders, they have no siege equipment, and the assault is repelled. So you know now Caesar decides to back up and handle the siege the right way, the way that he would normally handle a siege, and he builds for his army a fortified camp to protect them. He builds siege towers, he builds a dirt ramp up to the wall of the enemy, and he builds mantlets which are basically maybe wicker or wood screens to protect the besiegers from arrows and rocks as they march towards the walls and as they construct these, you know, these ramps and these siege towers. But at this point, Caesar still wasn't able to surround the city. And the Suessiones troops, who had been with the main Belgae force and had been running from the Romans, then arrive back at the city. And they are able to sneak back into it and re-enter the town at night. So that's not looking good for the Romans. Now they have fresh troops, they have troops that are ready to fight, and now it's going to be heavily manned. But in the end, it doesn't matter, because the Suessiones see the Romans building these siege towers, they see them building these ramps and these mantlets, and they had never seen anything like this siege equipment before. And what's more, the speed that the Romans were constructing this equipment just amaze them. Their minds are just blown by, one, the equipment being made, and two, how quickly it was being made. They had never seen engineering like this in their life, and it terrifies them. So they send envoys to Caesar asking to surrender just, just by seeing the siege equipment and how quickly it was being built. They want to surrender. And so at this point, the Remi, who's the Belgae tribe that defected to Caesar, intercede on their behalf and Caesar grants them safety. Basically, the Remy said that, hey, we are long-standing friends of the Suessiones, so yes, they went on the wrong side, they went against you, but we as your allies are vouching for them, and, and we would like for you to show mercy on them. 
And Caesar, he's okay with this. He's all about showing mercy, right? When, when the time is right. So he grants him safety. He shows mercy. And by doing this, he makes his new ally, the Remy, look powerful. And that's a big part of Rome and especially Caesar's strategy, strategy is if a tribe or a nation allies with you, you need to make them look powerful at every turn and make them look stronger for having allied with Rome. But Caesar's mercy comes at a price. He demands hostages from the Suessiones, and the hostages handed over include two sons of King Galba. Galba is the king of the Suessiones and the leader of the allied Belgae force. So the Belgae, when they all united, had chosen one man to lead them in this war, and it had been King Galba of the Suessiones, and now Caesar has two of his sons. So you can imagine his loyalties are torn at best if he's not just out of the war at this point. But Caesar's not done. Next, he moves on the Belovaki, the strongest of the, of the, or at least the most numerous of the Belgae. And the Belgae, or sorry, the, I always confuse these two names, the Belovaki retreat to one of their towns called, and this is a difficult name, but it's called Bratus Pontium. Bratus Pontium. And Caesar pursues them at a breakneck pace as always. So the Belgae strategy of all joining to help each other when one tribe is attacked is not working because Caesar's attacking them too quickly. You know, maybe they thought they'd have a few weeks to, you know, rest and recuperate and then Caesar might make a march on them. They didn't expect that the very next day after he chased them down like that, he would be coming for each tribe one by one. So the Romans pursue them to this town but when the Romans are only five miles away from the town, then the elders of the Belovaki come out of the town with hands bare, basically their palms showing to show that they have no weapons and they don't plan to fight. And they shout to Caesar that they, quote, entrusted themselves to his power and his protection, end quote. And Caesar continues to march and he reaches the town and he pitches camp next to the town. And a similar scene unfolds there as well. Boys and women gather on the walls, they stretch out their arms to Caesar, and they plead for peace and for mercy from Caesar and from the Romans. And Caesar, for his part, says that it was his custom to grant this mercy. And now, what's more, Divikiacus, the leader of the Idui, who had been headed for the Belovaki, he is back in the Roman camp. Because apparently, when he saw the Belgae were retreating and heading back towards the territory of the Belovaki, he disbanded his Idui cavalry. I don't know why I said it that way. <laughs> he disbanded his cavalry, his Idui cavalry, and he headed back towards the Roman army. So now he's back with the Roman army, and the Vikiakis pleads on the Belovaki's behalf. He says, hey, the Belovaki are a longstanding friend of the Idui. Again, like the Remy said, yes, they chose sides against you, but let us vouch for them, and we promise you that we will stand or we, we promise you that they will be well-behaved and that they will not rise against you anymore. And again, Caesar is always looking to please his allies, always looking to make them look strong. So he grants this request. He says, yes, that is okay. But the Belovaki are a very strong tribe, so Caesar gives them favorable terms, but he demands 600 hostages from them, 600 young kids from the noble families from the powerful families to guarantee their good behavior. And this is a huge number, even for those times. So Caesar must have expected that the Belovaki had other plans to rise up, and he wanted to make darn sure that if they surrendered, they stayed surrendered. 
And next, Caesar marches on the Ambiani. This is one of the smaller tribes. They had only contributed about 10,000 men to the Allied Belgic cause. And the Ambiani surrender without a fight. So one by one, these, these tribes are falling to Caesar just as he planned. Divide and conquer was the name of the game and still is. And it's working like a charm. But this would be the end of easy victories in Belgica for Caesar. Because on the border of the Ambiani are a tribe known as the Nervii. And the Nervii, in addition to providing a large number of troops to the Belgic force, the Nervii were the fiercest and most barbaric of the Belgae. Of the Belgae, they lived in the most remote forests, in the most remote wilderness. They banned Roman goods. They banned Roman wine. They felt that it made their men effeminate. They felt that it weakened them, that it, it made them immoral. And these guys had no intention of surrendering without a fight. They would rather fight to the death, much more like the Romans in that way. So the, the easy victories for Caesar and the Romans have come to an end, and the Nervii have every intention of putting up a big fight against the Romans. But that is where we will end our episode today, and we will pick up with the battle against the Nervii in next episode on the March of History. But before I go, let me just say, make sure to follow the March of History Instagram at the March of History. It's quality history content. If you like history, if you like travel, if you want to see just more about what I'm doing in my daily life as I explore the history of Europe, give it a follow. You will enjoy it. The Twitter is at March underscore history. Our Facebook, you can find if you just search the March of History. It has all the same content as the Instagram page. Our email is themarchofhistory at gmail.com. Feel free to send any feedback to that email. And if you listen on an Apple or Audible device, not an Audible device, but a device that has Audible, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a review. Uh, the more stars, the better. It helps other people know that it's a good show and it's a quality show worth listening to. It really helps the podcast to grow. So five stars is much appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications and to share it with all history tr lovers or anybody that you think could benefit from, from listening to a podcast like this or would enjoy it. That is all. Thank you for listening. And it's time for me to get out and enjoy the hot, beautiful Spanish sunshine before I bake to death in this apartment. So <laughs> enjoy your days and we will see you uh, next time on the March of History.